This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to yet another edition of Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Alan Pierce. I'm an attorney at Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And we're bringing you another edition of Workers' Comp Matters with a returning guest, Justin Beck. Uh, Just to give you a little background on Justin, he is not quite yet an attorney. He sat for the bar exam uh, just a few months ago. Um, He is currently employed as a law clerk at Thomas, Thomas & Hafer, LLP, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He also works as an academic research assistant for Judge David Torrey, professor of workers' compensation law at the University of Pittsburgh Law School, where he recently received his Juris Doctor this past spring of 2017. Uh, He has served as an intern at the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry. And the reason we invited Justin back is that he uh, wrote an interesting article or actually a review of a... um, another article uh, that we're going to talk to that deals with the rights for performing artists to collect workers' compensation benefits. Um, Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Case Pacer, a practice management software firm. They're dedicated to providing software for the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And our other sponsor is PI Now. Uh, you can find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PINow.com to learn more. So, Justin, first of all, congratulations on your degree, your future career as an attorney, which I know is going to be successful and rewarding, and more particularly for the article that you were able to publish that is entitled, Where's the Orchestra? Employee Classification of Performing Artists. So welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thanks so much, Alan. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, I I really found your article timely and interesting. Um, You know, Boston has a good theater community. Uh, We have a lot of uh, uh, professional and um, nonprofit and community theaters, and every once in a while, uh, we hear, since we do claimant workers' comp uh, law as the major part of our practice, we will occasionally get somebody who is injured somehow and somewhere in the performing arts. And the difficulty, at least for the performers, is finding a way to see if there is some entitlement to workers' compensation. So you uh, wrote this article uh, primarily as a review and commentary on another excellent article. I might as well plug it for the author. It uh, is Harvey Mars, M-A-R-S. He is an attorney in New York, and he uh, wrote an article for the June 2017 edition of the New York State Bar Journal entitled Performing Artists' Entitlement to Compensation Under the New York Workers' Compensation Law. So I think it's appropriate that perhaps we begin uh, with the New York experience, uh, especially as you will be able to tell our listeners there has been some interesting legislative history and, uh, in fact, uh, uh, judicial um, uh, history with respect to uh, the rights and um, abilities of performing artists to recover for injuries either in tort or uh, via workers' comp. So um, 
Why don't we begin by a discussion of the fact that New York being home to probably the largest um, area that has a concentration of performing artists, what have been the particular problems that were addressed um, um, in defining who is entitled to workers' comp in the performing arts arena? Yeah, obviously, as you said, New York is a, a hotspot for performers. Um, and so th this is really a, a focus of the state of New York and, and an issue they've dealt with for a while. Uh, it goes back to um, really the turning point is 1986. Uh, before 1986, many performers, uh, performing artists, were, were musicians, singers, um, it, were generally considered to be independent contractors. Um, and uh, many listeners uh, will know that that is a tale as old as time, figuring out if a worker is an independent contractor or an employee. And that often decides whether they're going to be eligible to receive not just workers' compensation benefits, but unemployment benefits and, and, and all sorts of insurance programs. Um, before 1986, like I said, uh, they were generally in New York. Uh, performers were considered to be independent contractors. And uh, there was a uh, serious uh, legislative push, uh, a lobbying effort um, that uh, was successful in 86. And the New York legislature finally passed an amendment to their workers' compensation law. Uh, there's a little bit of a debate on whether we would call this a presumption, but for our purposes, we will. Uh, there is now a presumption that says performing artists, uh, those in television, uh, music, radio, uh, are presumed to be employees for purposes of workers' compensation. Um, that's rebuttable. The uh, traditional common law right of control test can rebut that. But since 1986, that has been the general law. Uh, recently, this came into question because in 2011, a famous uh, opera singer at the Met, uh, Miss Wendy White, was involved in a work accident uh, during a performance, and that gave rise to some litigation and uh, an effort by uh, Miss White to be exempt from this so she could bring her own tort suit and recover more damages than she otherwise would be entitled to. And that's where we find ourselves today um, after her case, um, reflecting on whether the grand bargain uh, continues in New York for performing artists. You go into some detail uh, in Wendy White's case, and just to give some background, this did involve uh, the world-famous Metropolitan Opera, and there was an accident to Wendy White, a uh, mezzo-soprano, uh, during a performance of Faust on December 17, 2011, and apparently she fell from a platform about eight feet from the stage um, no broken bones, um, some nerve damage, and what it did was that it prevented her from being able um, to sing the way she used to sing. And she was offered or um, collected or uh, was eligible under the 1986 statute for workers' comp coverage because of this presumption that she was an employee. But as you pointed out, she didn't want the available remedy of workers' comp, and the reason, I guess, would be simple. Uh, workers' comp provides a percentage of lost wages that probably would be very limited, given her high earnings, uh, but she would not have any compensation at all for the loss of her career. So uh, walk us through how she tried to creatively 
um, get out from under the workers' comp statute, which is usually counterintuitive to what we're doing is we're trying to get people covered under workers' comp for the most part. Like you said, uh, Ms. White knew that if she were to be considered an employee and uh, ha- only had access to the exclusive remedy of workers' compensation, the award would have been much lower. Uh, you're looking at just lost wages um, and medical benefits uh, versus the career-ending um, impact and potential award in tort uh, of a, a traditional lawsuit. And so Ms. White uh, retained lawyers and lobbyists, and um, those individuals went to the legislature, the New York legislature, and they, in the first round, uh, attempted to obtain from the legislature uh, a bill that would amend the workers' comp law to provide for opt-out of coverage for any uh, musician or performer before any injury. Um and in his article, uh, Mr. Mars, he characterizes this as a throwback to the pre-1986 legal landscape. And he kind of characterizes it as an adverse impact on musicians who lacked any understanding of opting out of a law like this and the loss of protections when you declare yourself an independent contractor. Um, one interesting point here is that you may have a worker who chooses to utilize that exemption is injured, returns to work, and then they can't invoke in the future employee status because they've already said, uh, they've set a precedent for themselves, and, and, and they've said, I am an independent contractor. Now, that very first bill or, or attempt uh, at legislation failed. Um, Governor Cuomo would not sign it. Uh, he said that it would violate that fundamental bargain of uh, New York's workers' compensation system. Um, and so that failed. Um, Actually, three bills in total were presented to the legislature uh, with the goal of getting Ms. White's suit to proceed, Um, and and her suit was actually a breach of contract. Uh, I am assuming to some extent there were also personal injury aspects attached to it, Um, but uh, those efforts failed in the legislature. And that, by the way, that lawsuit was basically defended in whole or in part by the defendants citing the exclusive remedy provisions of the New York Workers' Comp Law, filing a motion to dismiss or summary judgment saying, sorry, Ms. White, you cannot file a claim against your employer under the fact that they are immune from suit under the Workers' Comp Statute. Is that correct? It is correct. Um, as, this, as the case went up, though, in the appellate courts, um, the, the, the court started looking at it and saying, well, there may be something else going on here. Um, it, Ms. White was actually an employee of her own company, Wendy White Incorporated. And so the court started analyzing it through the lens of, well, maybe Ms. White is not an employee of the Met. Maybe she's an employee of her own corporation, and the corporation worked with the Met. So while you had the legislative efforts going on, you also had the judicial track. And the judicial track was finding some other uh, reasoning to potentially allow this suit to move forward. Yeah, that's an interesting take because then if if she were deemed to be an employee of her own corporation, the Met would then take on the status as a third party, somebody not uh, within that narrow employer-employee relationship between Wendy White, Inc. and Wendy White. How come that in and of itself wasn't enough to go after the Met? Well, it, it, it gets around the exclusive remedy. And um, it, 
what's funny about this is we never really find out how that ends. We never find out whether the court ultimately bought that argument, whether that would have succeeded, because as I was saying at the same time, the legislative efforts were going on and they succeeded. Um, uh, she eventually was able to obtain uh, an exception specifically for her injury, an exception in the legislation. Yeah, and, and I found that amazing, and I guess it may speak to uh, certain people who have greater access to um, remedies than the ordinary common uh, a laborer or worker. So she, um, tell us about the amendment that was um, passed by the legislature and was signed by Governor Cuomo, I think, this past spring. Yeah, it was very recently in March of this year, 2017. Uh, Governor Cuomo signed it into law. It was uh, it, it's what is known as a picture bill. And uh, it, my understanding of a picture bill uh, that may be New York terminology is it is legislation limited only to one person, one incident. Um, and it provided Miss White with an exception to the workers' compensation law, and it permitted her civil case to proceed without disturbing that broader coverage that the law permits to workers, maybe similarly situated or just your average performer that is not uh, Miss White, uh, does not have the uh, resources, um, the wealth, the leverage uh, to obtain an exception. And so that is, uh, in my mind and also in, in speaking with Mr. Mars, that's why this succeeded uh, eventually in 2017, because it was an exception that didn't uh, it did not affect the rest of the industry. The average worker could still be injured on the job uh, as a performer and would still receive workers' compensation benefits. Um, whereas Miss White, uh, in this exception was it was so narrowly tailored that um, I was looking at the text of the uh, the bill itself. It only speaks to her incident on that day in that um, at the Met. And so, Given the narrowness of it, uh, the legislature was more comfortable, the governor was more comfortable, and uh, her, her attorneys and lobbyists were uh, successful in obtaining that exception for her. And it, it kind of rendered some of the reasoning of the appellate courts moot uh, because now the legislature had permitted her case to move forward regardless. All right, this may be a good place to take a break. And when we come back, I think we want to talk a little more about the White case because uh, of a distinction that may or may not be within the four corners of any legislation, uh, defining who is a star versus who is anything but a star in a performance and how that may impact eligibility for benefits either in tort or in comp. And also, you know, taking this beyond the state of New York, uh, where what are the other issues, including general liability and some exclusions that may be in some of those liability policy. So at this point, I think we're going to take a short break, hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back with Justin Beck on the other side. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, CasePacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see CasePacer in action, contact us today at CasePacer.com. 
Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back. Workers' Comp Matters with Alan Pierce and Justin Beck. We're talking about performing artists' right to collect workers' comp or to seek a tort remedy against uh, their employer. We spent most of our first half of the show talking about a very interesting case, the Wendy White uh, Metropolitan Opera case. Uh, And as we were, and as Justin pointed out in his article, a lot of the the court's attention and the legislature's attention had to do with how you define who's entitled, who may not be entitled to benefits, independent contractor, employee. But it became an important issue before it became moot as to whether there was a difference between a so-called star performer, and my Boston accent is maybe coming in, it's S-T-A-R, a star of the show as opposed to uh, the supporting and, and uh, ensemble actors or actresses. So how did, how did the concept of, of uh, a star's right to recover creep into this um, interesting um, legal journey of Wendy White and the Met? Well, the appellate court, um, when they were analyzing the comp law and the 1986 amendment, they found that the legislative history did actually indicate that star performers were at one point intended to be exempt from coverage. Um, And they found that the statutory definition of employee sought to protect um, the vast majority of performers who are not stars. Um, and, And the statutory exception was designed to exclude those performers that had the uh, the clouts, the ability to negotiate the terms of their own engagements. Um, so it really came down to leverage. It came down to uh, protecting the average working performer, whereas uh, star performers, those with uh, uh, social connections, those with um, resources that could hire uh good lawyers, you can put it that way, uh, they weren't really to be considered uh, as needing these protections in the 1986 amendments. Um, But that that language never made it into the statute at the end of the day. And so um, the court considered it. And um, uh, as we said, it became moot to some extent. But it's interesting that moving forward, if we have another case like this in New York, we now know that the courts are looking to this concept and they're pulling that legislative history. So if another uh, star performer uh, finds himself in this situation, uh, this, this could be a useful case, useful precedent um, for an exception again sometime in the future. All right. So let's say uh, Wendy White is successful in being able to bring a tort action. Generally speaking, the defendants are covered by insurance. Oftentimes the insurance policy is a CGL or a comprehensive general liability policy. So you now have a defendant and you have an injury and you have damages. And now you're looking for the mechanism or vehicle to to collect those damages against. Um, I have learned something from your article that I didn't know, which... uh, hopefully is a daily occurrence for me, Uh, there are certain exclusions in CGL policies, and there's one particular exclusion that may apply in cases like this. 
Uh, why don't you give us uh, an idea of what that exclusion might be? I also didn't uh, know this until I, I did the research for this article. Um, generally, uh, businesses, uh, they have workers' compensation. They have CGL for everything else. And uh, a lot of times you think, well, that, that, that does it. That covers everything that could happen. But actually, there's a common exclusion to CGL known as the Entertainment Industry Exclusion, the EIE. And this exists in many CGL policies, I found. Um, the provisions exclude any bodily injury suffered by individuals that arises out of uh, activities such as film, stage, plays, radio music. That's often the language they use in these provisions. Um, and these have impacted both entertainers and businesses. Uh, you have businesses that purchase CGL policies and a performer is injured on the premises. And this exclusion does not provide for coverage for that. You also have often entertainers going out uh, that do this for a living. Again, we're talking about the working performers, and they purchase CGL policies for their own business, just going out to different venues and performing. They have their own CGL policy. And when they are injured on the job um, and they try to make a claim for their own injury and, and, and uh, have some coverage, it's not there. Uh, the CGL policy has the exception, and because the injury arose out of the performance, the actual music itself, a lot of these policies uh, will not permit coverage, and the the musician is left on their own. Yeah, and you, and you're a musician yourself, so you, you're probably particularly concerned. Uh, let me guess, piano. That is correct, piano and voice. Yeah. So you got to protect the, the fingers and the voice. So I, I uh, again, from your article, there have been a lot of litigation or some recent litigation in California, uh, which is probably the other state that has the most concentration, at least in terms of workforce, of entertainers. And um, this so-called embedded EIE, or entertainment industry exclusion. So any of us that might be faced with a case defending uh, a claimant or plaintiff, um, business trying to insure itself, uh, it's good to know about uh, EIE, get it waived as an exclusion, uh, or get it in there if you want it. Um, so let's, let's, take, let's look elsewhere from New York and California, where there's probably a lot more litigation. You practice, or you will be practicing, but you're very versed in Pennsylvania law. How, ha how would Pennsylvania, as probably emblematic of most other jurisdictions, uh, treat the entertainers in these contexts? Pennsylvania treats it, uh, as you said, um, pretty similarly to most. Um, this is a very common uh, scheme of analysis. Um, it's the right of control test. And, uh, and they use this in New York as well. Um, in Pennsylvania, our leading case is Hammer Mill Paper. It's a 1968 case, and our workers' compensation um, practice has kind of adopted it as the controlling precedent. Um, and in that case, for us here in Pennsylvania, the Supreme Court established the factors to be considered when you're trying to determine whether you have an independent contractor or an employee. And some of those factors, uh, they range from uh, the control, the manner of work being done, the skill excuse me, the skill required for performance, and whether uh, one employee is engaged in a distinct occupation. And interestingly, I, I find this one always uh, it really comes up, which party supplies the tools. 
And you can see those factors um, applied to musicians. Uh, when a band shows up to a bar, they are bringing their own speakers, generally. They're bringing their instruments. Um, they are bringing the cords, the cables, and they are bringing a special skill set um, because nobody at the bar, the bar owner, the bartender doesn't know how to sing, how to play an instrument. So uh, it's a distinct occupation. Um, it's highly specialized. You're bringing the tools. Um, so you can see how the analysis can sometimes weigh in, in that direction. Yeah, let's contrast that with an actor. Uh, the, the scenery, the set, everything is uh, designed by somebody else. And talk about direction and control. There's a director not only telling you what to say, how to say it, how to move, where to move. Do you see a distinction between actors and musicians? The same analysis applies. Uh, in that scenario, again, uh, the saying is control is king. So if you have a director telling you um, exactly what to do, what to say, where to stand. They are providing um, the materials, uh, whatever the scenario is, uh, the stage equipment, um, the backdrop. Um, to me, that moves you towards employee status um, because, uh, yes, you're bringing a specialized skill, but we all bring skills to the work, uh, the work site. Um, it's a totality of the circumstances test, and in, in that example, uh, you're starting to move that needle towards um, employee status. Mm -hmm. And there was such a case, uh, it's a bit older than uh, most, uh, it's older than you, younger than me, that's the Russell versus Torch Club case, a 1953 New Jersey case that you discuss. Um, as we close the show, why don't you give us a brief rundown of the facts of uh, uh, Ms. Russell and how she fared bringing a workers' comp claim? Yeah, this is a famous one in 1953 uh, in New Jersey. Uh, uh, Miss Russell was a nightclub singer um, pursuing a workers' comp claim, uh, and she was found to be an employee rather than an independent contractor. Well, let's, let's talk about what her job was. She appeared, what, four nights a week at this nightclub, and uh, her dress caught fire from a gas heater and burned her. So how, about the, how, did, how did the right of control uh, impact that case? They talk about, in that case, um, a complete dominance by the employer's master of the revels, famous language from this. It was the piano accompanist. And um, uh, he told her how to sing the song, which way to sing the songs, um, when to take breaks, and in fact, when she took breaks, how to speak to the crowd, how to socialize and mingle, um, how to sit and drink with patrons at the bar. This level of control uh, dominated uh, uh, the worker. It told them exactly what to do, when to do it. And, and based on that control, that exercise degree of control, it created an employer-employee relationship. And so that's why she was entitled to workers' comp benefits. As a matter of fact, I remember when I first started practicing, I worked for Liberty Mutual, and we insured one of the, uh, the bars in what was then known as the combat zone, uh, basically a lot of uh, strip clubs and fairly seedy uh, Establishments it was called the combat zone is because the military police were there all weekend because mostly the sailors and soldiers on leave. That's where a lot of them would go. And one of the strippers uh, broke her arm when she fell off a bar stool. And she filed for workers' comp. Liberty held a policy for the club. And apparently she's on the bar stool because part of her job was in between uh, her um, dancing on the, on the floor. She was, again, supposed to mingle with the customers, uh, have them purchase the drinks. I think uh, a watered-down beer was probably $10 or $15, and somehow she fell off the stool and broke her arm. The industrial board never went any further than the industrial board, but there was uh, a ruling that 
because of if she were injured while stripping, she probably wouldn't have been covered, but she was injured uh, under the direction and control of being required to mingle with the customers, get them to purchase drinks, etc. So um, the exercise on dominance of control there uh, was a very, you know, uh, fine line. So having said that, Justin, I want to thank you for appearing on Workers' Comp Matters for your article. If uh, somebody wants to reach you, how might they uh, find you? They can contact me anytime through email. Uh, my email is jdb162 at pitt, P-I-T-T dot E-D-U. Happy to forward the article or uh, answer any questions. All right. Once again, uh, Justin, thank you for joining us here on Workers' Comp Matters. For those of you listening, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and tune in to our next show and otherwise go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.